Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about some of the benefits of social media and how we can use it to make a much bigger impact in the world than we can from sitting in our offices. Now, this episode is going to be a little bit different to normal today um, because at the time of recording, we are still very much under lockdown and I am locked in with my two toddlers. That means you might hear a little bit of background noise and I'm going to be recording this in 10 minute chunks. So I apologise it sounds a little bit more disjointed than normal, but it's kind of the world we're living in right now, isn't it? We're all feeling a little bit disjointed, so I hope you can forgive me for it. The good news is that this lockdown has really brought social media to life. And I think we are all seeing the good sides of social media and the bad sides of social media amplified in the current situation. So it's given me a lot of pause for thought and a few more ideas actually about how we can use social media going forwards in a really positive way. So I hope you'll get a lot from this episode and as ever I'm really interested to hear how it resonates with you and any ideas that spring from it so please do get in touch. Uh, Facebook's probably the easiest place to find me over in the Do More Than Therapy Facebook group um, but please do get in touch and let me know what you're doing with your social media. Okay, so social media and psychology, they can often seem to be a bit adversarial at first. So a lot of us, um, anybody who's as old as me, did not grow up with social media. We're introduced to it as adults and we've probably fallen foul of its temptations to blur boundaries and cause offence every now and again as we've struggled to manage the disinhibition effect and to cope with the fact that it's very, very difficult to switch it off. So... It's therefore pretty understandable that many of us, and I fully include myself in this, get a bit nervous when we hear our clients talking about using social media, especially the young ones. Um, But it's really important that we're not blind to the positive impact that this can have for many of them. Um, So I do want to talk today, I'm going to talk about two things. I'm going to talk about how we can use social media as a community intervention and to get a bigger audience and make better interventions outside of the therapy room. And I'm also going to talk about how we can use it inside the therapy room, because that's something I've not really seen people talking about much. But I know that with especially my younger clients, but increasingly clients my own age and older as well, I have been able to bring social media into the therapy room in a really positive way. And I don't think that gets very much airtime. I don't see it written about very much. So I really want to make sure we do talk about that today. Today, I'm focusing purely on the positives of social media. There are a lot of risks and I think they deserve an episode of their own. Um, So I'm going to save that for a later date. But today, I really want to try and energise us all around the idea of what we can do with social media because so many of us are not able to work in the way we normally do right now. And social media is a way that we can still make the impact that we want to make. So unpacking the positive impact of social media, one way that I think it can be extremely positive is that it can actually build the community for community psychology, because it's all very well having an amazing idea for a community psychology intervention. But if nobody in your community knows anything about you or 
has any reason to trust you, you're not going to get anybody through the door. And I have fallen foul of that myself. So I'm very much speaking from a place of experience. Um, So some of you know that I'm a forces wife and I move every two years, which means that it's very hard for me to be embedded in a community. And how long ago now? Two and a bit years ago, I found myself in a part of London that I'd never lived in before. And I decided I wanted to run a perinatal mental health wellbeing workshop. Uh, naively, I advertised it in all of the traditional ways, told loads of people about it, put up leaflets, posters, all of that good stuff. I did advertise it a little bit on Facebook, um, but I wasn't particularly savvy about it. So I didn't have that many people following, but a couple of people said that they were going to show up and I was excited, even if it was only going to be a small group. As you might imagine, I showed up, had all my kit, I'd made a lovely PowerPoint. I was really excited, had loads of cake and tea and nobody showed up. It was tumbleweed and it was really, really painful. Um, But that was because I wasn't embedded in the community. I didn't know what they needed. I didn't know how to speak to them in the language that they understood or they used or related to. And I'd just kind of gone in with what I thought people needed without really doing the research. And that's really understandable given the circumstances, but we have this amazing tool now where we can get to know people, we can be in a community with people, learn how they speak, learn what they want, learn what they need, and then create the thing which meets that need. We don't need to go top down anymore, we can go bottom up. I think that's really, really exciting. One of our previous episodes on this podcast was with Dr. Kate Quinn from Heavy Metal Therapy. And I think she's got a really amazing example of that because she's brought people together around a shared passion and interest and then facilitated that interest becoming a positive and productive sense of identity. And then from that, events and further um, positive interventions have sprung. But she didn't come in with her idea of, right, we're all going to sit down and listen to heavy metal in this very specific way and you're going to get benefits because of X, Y and Z because the research has shown that. That's not the sense you get from heavy metal therapy at all. It's a collection of people that have gathered around a shared love, a shared passion, and then positive outcomes have flowed from that. And I think we can learn so much from that kind of bottom up approach. So I'd really urge you, if you're thinking about, you know, oh, okay, I like this idea of building a community, maybe I'll set up a Facebook group or a mighty network or a Twitter chat or or build an Instagram um, to build a community around, then don't just think, I need to have a mental health account. Don't just think, oh, I'll set up a support group for X, Y, and Z. Think wider than that. Is there something that you love that also can have benefits that fits with the work that you do. So I haven't done this, but for example, I am really um, keen on exercise. I'm really into running and basically anything that gives me endorphins. I'm quite an endorphin junkie. Now, if I set up a group that was for, I don't know, solo parent runners that's something that would be very close to my heart because it's really hard to go running as a solo parent so I'm often out there with my two kids in the double buggy getting very funny looks and comments from every person that sees us (laughs) Um, and that's kind of difficult 
and also extremely rewarding. And I imagine there are quite a lot of other solo parents who find similar benefits. Um, and we could come together as a, as a community and talk about running and what's the best running buggy and what's um, the best time of day to run with the kids and do you try and get your kids to nap while you're running and all of those issues. Um, and from that, I could learn if people were struggling with their mental health and what they might need to enhance it. You know, do they want something like a virtual running club? Do they want something like a Twitter chat or an Instagram to give them inspiration? I could learn that from actually getting feedback from the people who have the need. So sometimes coming at it from a different angle where you're not sitting down and thinking, right, okay, I want to talk to this clinical group. But just thinking, you know, I want to talk to people and learn from people and I have this interest that I could gather them around. And of course, you have to respect your own boundaries. With it, I'm very happy for clients to know that I run, for example, so that would be quite a good one for me. There are other interests I have that I wouldn't routinely share with my clients that I might not then choose to set up a, a group around um, because maybe they're too personal. But... I think we all know where our own boundaries are. And so long as you sit down, you're very intentional with everything you do, then there's no reason that you should fall foul of that. So within supportive communities, we and our clients can find the strength that we need to dare greatly. So people that have been through hard times um, often stay really small in their hobbies, in their careers and in their families because of that enduring shame that a lot of people are living with. Sharing experiences and gaining support from others in similar situations can really unlock that. And I've seen that in action a lot in the mums and business networking groups that I'm a member of. They're a really good example of this because in there you've got women who are facing all kinds of difficult circumstances to tr when they're trying to propel their businesses forward. So you've got everybody from people trying to sell like Arbonne cosmetics from their living room because they're a single parent with three kids uh, to people who are, you know, smashing it as a freelancer in the financial sector. Um, but what they've all got in common is that they're all struggling with, with common issues like, you know, mum guilt or setting their working hours or doing things like this, having to fit their work around their time with the kids. And sometimes somebody will post on there um, something quite vulnerable about how they're really struggling with the balance and they're really struggling with the juggle. And within a couple of minutes, there'll be 10 or 20 comments even with people being like, I really struggled with that yesterday. Today I'm feeling stronger. Sometimes you have to ride the waves. And usually something along the lines of you've got this. And it makes such a positive difference to people. You should see the testimonials in those groups. And of course, it varies. There are groups that are a bit toxic and not that helpful. But um, the one I'm in particularly, which is Mums in Business Association Devon, is extremely supportive. And I can see the benefits that it's having for, for people in that group who otherwise might feel too inhibited to, to get their voices out there. And I think if we can do that for people, then while we're doing that, we'll find some people who probably need a bit more help and maybe we can create what they need. But in itself, it is a community intervention, although I'm pretty sure the people that set that one up would never think of themselves as providing any kind of psychological community intervention. They are, and we can. So building a social community helps you to form genuine relationships. You then have the platform from which you can make an impact.
So you can develop an online course or book or a workshop that people actually want to need. That's obviously a massive benefit and is surely the true meaning of service user involvement. But that also has an added benefit for you because it means that you're not going to take as much risk, not as much financial risk or um, level of effort that you could do if you set about creating something before you fully tested the idea. So if, say, you've got a group with a thousand people in it and you've been talking to them for a while about, you know, maybe struggling with, I don't know, anger um, in their parenting, for example. That's a, a relevant example for me at the moment. And you've been having a lot of conversations about that and you think, oh, you know, I think that quite a few people might be interested in a workshop about um, dealing with the anger that our kids bring up for us. Well, rather than spending loads of time creating the content for the workshop without anybody signing up for it, you can put a sales page up very quickly and very cheaply and say, look, if you want this workshop, then sign up and pay in advance, even if it's something that you're only planning to charge a very small amount for. If you do that, you can see that people genuinely want what you're creating. Therefore, you'll waste no time. If people don't want it, they won't sign up for it. You won't spend any time creating something nobody wants. If they do want it, you get a small group of people to try it out. You get feedback. You create something even better, something that fits their needs even more and then with those testimonials and feedback from from those people in the community it will snowball and more and more people will take you up on your offers so that's another way that community can work to get your projects going in a low risk way that then has the ability to snowball and become something much much bigger so I learned those lessons and managed to make my hypnobirthing workshops um, successful down here in Plymouth and literally I did that by going into other people's communities that were dealing with topics that I knew hypnobirthing was relevant to so I went into lots of groups for for expectant mums, um, lots of groups around things like parenting, um, coping with newborns. Uh, there are tons of groups like Preg Pregnant Mums UK or, or something like that. Um, and I just made myself a useful person in there. I um, spoke to people, had genuine conversations and just noticed, you know, what were they struggling with? And then in the local ones, I also got to know people um, in enough depth that I could figure out, you know, in terms of time commitment, in terms of financial commitment, what is going to be reasonable and possible for these people. And I crafted a hypnobirthing offer that fit the conversations that I'd had. So it turned out that down here in Plymouth, the hypnobirthing workshops that people wanted and needed were very, very different to the ones that I had been providing up in London. So in London, I'd done lots of um, weekly courses where they were like two hours a week in the evenings after work. Um, they were very um, involved and so were at quite a high price point, but they included lots of luxury along with them, lots of little extras that made people feel like it was a really special experience during their birth preparation. And people loved that. Down here in Plymouth, there's a lot more deprivation in this area 
people who were talking to me about hypnobirthing were generally coming from a place of real fear um, rather than a place of luxury and wanting a really positive experience. They just wanted it to not be a terrible experience. So I changed the way that I talked about it and I changed the delivery to suit their budget. So I provided a low cost five hour workshop where I could introduce the basics of hypnobirthing, get them doing some practical stuff together, um, but it didn't have to cost them as much as it would have done to do it over a, a much longer period of time. And that's what suited the needs of the people down here. And so I only got to know that. I never would have anticipated that. I only got to know it um, by really building myself into the local community before I ever even crafted my offer. Another way that certainly I think I thought I was going to use social media a lot when I was starting out in private practice was as a way of getting client referrals for therapy. So what I've learned actually along the way is that psychologists and therapists in private practice often don't need social media to market their services effectively. So I've now got an overbooked practice and not that many of my clients have come from social media. I've been doing it for a couple of years now um, and I am now starting to see a few people um, come through the door. It feels like an odd thing to say in the middle of <laughs> COVID-19, but yeah, they were coming through the door. Um, who have been aware of my content on social media. Interestingly, I don't have very many followers on social media. Um, so this often really, really surprises me when it happens. Um, but invariably, they've told me that they haven't liked or commented or followed my page, but they've been coming back to it manually um, because somebody recommended it to them once and they find the content really helpful. They just don't want people to know that they're struggling with their mental health. So that is something important that I wanted to share. But anyway, I digress slightly. My point was that it hasn't been a brilliant um, client generating tool for me. And I think the reason for that is you've got to remember why people are on social media. They're on social media because they want to socialise. They want to find out what people are up to. Maybe they're on there, you know, browsing for new experiences, new interesting articles, that kind of thing. But what they're not doing is trying to solve their problems on social media. People solve their problems in Google, in my opinion. Just thinking from my personal experience, if I was looking for a therapist, where would I type in you know, online therapist or therapist in Plymouth, I would type that into the search bar in Google. I would definitely not go looking for that on social media. So we have to remember that. However, social media is a really important tool for helping people decide to use you rather than another therapist. And that is very much the way that I see it. I see it as giving the client the power to know whether therapy with me is right for them. So I don't see it as selling at all. I see it as giving people the knowledge they need to make an informed decision and ultimately to consent in a, in a genuine and informed way to therapy with me. So I use my social media basically to give people a little bit of light touch psychoeducation about how I do therapy. So I might put something up which is quite a conversational caption, but in there I'll be using non-pathologizing language. I will be um, 
talking about things like low mood and worries rather than using the labels of depression and anxiety. Sometimes I'll directly put stuff up that challenges the medical model. A lot of the time it's much more just kind of modelling, talking about mental health in a, in a non-pathologising, non-judgmental way. Um, but that's really important. It really speaks to the, the kind of clients that are going to benefit from working with me. And that means that when you do get referrals, because people will, wherever they get your name from, whether that's Google or whether it's their insurance company or whether it's a friend, they will look you up on social media. And it means what I see now, two years into being quite active on social media, is that I don't really get people coming through my door from whatever route who don't like the way that I work. The majority of people that I see know how I work and they work and they don't come if they don't like it so that means that I get the people who can benefit the most from the kind of therapy that I do and who are most on board with my way of um, talking and my way of seeing the world and I think that is really helpful um, from a client's perspective and definitely from our perspective as well as a therapist I also, and you all know already that I think this, but I think that social media enables us to spread messages to people who maybe they're not particularly interested in psychology. Maybe they're not the people that are going to pick up The Guardian or The Independent or read any kind of specialist areas of any newspaper about mental health. Um, but they might be your friend on Facebook or they might be a friend of a friend on Facebook or you might be able to put a message into an hashtag on Instagram that they're following. And I think that's really powerful. And that's why, although I wouldn't say that I have fully mastered the platforms of Instagram or Twitter yet, I really think those platforms have a huge potential for us because Facebook can become a bit of an echo chamber. But with Instagram and Twitter, you have the ability to reach people who were not necessarily looking for you. And I think we can do that in such a positive way. We've got things to say that people need to hear. And if we can harness the power of those platforms to do that, then I think that is us doing our jobs in a way that's really fit for the 21st century. So finally, I wanted to talk a little bit about how psychology and social media can actually work together well in the therapy room. So I've used social media in several ways with clients in my private practice, and I'm sure there are many more ways of doing it, and I'd absolutely love to hear them. So if you've got an innovative way that you've used social media in your practice, please, please do get in touch. Um, Get in touch through the Do More Than Therapy group on Facebook if you can, um, because that's where I am most of the time. So one way that you can start to bring social media into therapy in a useful way that I found is through polls. So if a client is struggling with cognitive restructuring, social media can give you an easy way of asking lots of people a quick question or sending out a more in-depth survey. I must admit, I don't do a lot of traditional CBT cognitive restructuring these days, as I'm more fond of the ACT approach to dealing with difficult thoughts. However, when I have a client who believes something like, I'm such a freak for getting upset when the taxi driver had a go at me, I must have an anxiety disorder, I have often used social media to normalise that experience by putting a poll up on my personal page or maybe in a safe group, just asking people whether or not they'd find a similar situation upsetting. I find that really powerful for people who think that their normal human experiences are pathological. So, of course, it's always posted with absolutely no 
identifying information and it's from my accounts. So I don't really have any worries about confidentiality or a person making themselves too vulnerable because ultimately, although this isn't necessarily the spirit of it, but ultimately if the responses were unhelpful to the client, they would not see them. Um, and obviously where the poll goes out does mean it, it could be seen as a bit of an echo chamber. But I find that clients don't normally worry that much about that and it has had some really powerful results for me. Secondly, social media gives the client the opportunity to try out new identities that they might not be ready to adopt in different ways. So I've supported clients to create accounts using pseudonyms and high privacy settings that showcase a particular aspect of them that has been neglected in real life. So they can see how it feels to put that type of content out to a small group of trusted people and receive feedback. We can then practice skills for dealing with uncomfortable feelings that come up and assess how well that potential identity fits with their values. So it's really important when we're doing this to make sure the client understands that the platform could do something unpredictable and make the information public. I'm always a massive sceptic about things like privacy settings. I, I think we have to understand that anything that we put on the internet anywhere could be seen by anybody at some point. So I usually I help clients work out that risk assessment for themselves. But most of the time, it's not something outrageous that a client would would use this for. It's something like a craft project that deep down they're really proud of, but they're really scared that maybe a, a few critical people in their lives might be hard on them um, if they were to show it publicly. So in my practice, I found that using social media in this way has had a really significant positive impact as it shows clients they've got the power to change how they're perceived by others and how they see themselves. And that can be really powerful for somebody who maybe they were given a label in their early teens, which they're now in midlife and they've never managed to shift it. So a talented client of mine started a blog during this kind of experiment in therapy. We weren't sure if she'd find the potential for criticism tolerable. So we entered the experiment with a lot of trepidation. But since then, 18 months later, it's blossomed into a potential career path for her and she now considers writer to be part of her identity. That's just been a really powerful experience for me as a therapist because 18 months ago, when I suggested this to her, that we could start kind of dripping things out to a very limited audience under a pseudonym, I was as scared as she was about it. But I also had this really strong um, belief that she was capable of being far more than a psychiatric patient. She just couldn't see herself in that way yet. And I think that's where the power has been for her. It's in the comments from people saying, you're such a talented writer. It's people giving her that label of writer, um, which is so far outside any of the labels she's been given before in her life. And if social media can, can do that and can help us to support people to create that change in their own lives, then I think it's a tool that we're going to be using much more in therapy going forward. Social media can also help us find meaningful activity. So in the modern world, it's so much easier to support our clients to find activities that provide them true vitality. Because whatever your passion is, there's a good chance you'll find a Facebook group or, or an event um, that matches your passion. And I don't think that could ever be more true than at the time that I'm recording this under, under lockdown. Finally, a little bit of healthy stalking can be useful. So 
many clients express that certain things aren't possible for them. You know, we often hear as therapists, yeah, all right, that would be all right for you because you've had a silver spoon or you've just, you're so confident or you've got so much more going for you than I've got going for me. And when we feel low, we can often feel like all the doors are open for others slam in our faces. But social media allows us to find exceptions to this. So I don't do this for a client, but I often will encourage this in between sessions. So recently I had a client who suffered a life-changing injury. After six months of therapy, she was still struggling to believe she'd ever live a meaningful life. Now she couldn't walk unaided. I set her between session work to find somebody who'd found meaning after injury so we could see what was different about their situation and hers. She came back having found the hashtag superhumans. She still believed that Paralympians were the exception, not the rule, but it gave her the glimmer of hope that we needed to make some more progress in therapy. So I'm not saying that it solved all of the issues, it didn't, but it meant that she couldn't flatly deny the possibility of positivity in her future in quite the same way that she had done before. I also think it was powerful because I didn't give her that hashtag. I just said, I reckon there probably is some stuff out there. I'm not going to look for it. You look for it. And she made the discovery. And I would always suggest that it needs to be somebody else's discovery. You can't do it for them. There are so many other ways you could use social media as a community psychology intervention or as part of your practice as a therapist or clinical psychologist. I have no doubt that in the future we'll be finding more creative ways to use avatars, close social networks and other social technology to support clients. The most important message is really that we don't need to blindly fear the impact of social media. Social media can have positive impact and social me media and psychology can mix just fine. So I would absolutely love to hear your experiences, whether you agree with this kind of positive messaging about social media, or whether even if you've had some difficult experiences, please come and get the conversation started over in the Do More Than Therapy community on Facebook. The link's in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy.